Hello, and welcome to the Untitled History Podcast, the podcast where two former history students explore the ebbs and flows of the past with a, quite frankly, stunning punctuality. There's no need to investigate that claim. I'm your host, Kane, and I wish my name was longer because saying it out loud, well, it sounds unjustifiably emphatic. I'm joined, and as always, by my delightfully bisyllabic co-host, Ryan. How are you doing, Ryan? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. You know, you did use that on me before, and it's it's, it's better the second time, I'm going to be honest. That that was um, brava. Brava. You, yeah, uh, I can't wait to hear me flip over that middle part, but it's fine. We're good. <laughs> right. uh, so uh, I believe we should bring the lovely people up to where we were. Uh, three months ago, was it now? Two, three months ago? Three months ago, last week. You know, who's to say, really? You know what? When someone 20 but, uh, years down the road is listening to this all, all all at once, it won't matter. Right. It'll be completely seamless, and they'll be rather annoyed that we are uh, reminding our lovely audience of what we discussed last time. Um, so to briefly recap some of the ideas we covered, we were discussing the ancient Greek league system, uh, the classical Greek league system. We had done a general overview of conditions in Greece and the, and uh, a history leading up to the Persian Wars, and it stopped right at the end of the Persian Wars. Some of the major themes we covered included, uh, one, from a physical and geographical standpoint, that Greece did not lend itself to a sprawling empire. Rather, its physical dimensions encouraged uh, an incubation of small, densely packed nodes uh, this process, defined by uh, Sinoikism and that general um, phenomenon, uh, and also contoured by human agency and chance, became what we know as the the polis or city-state system of Greece. Uh, we also discussed colonization and conquest, which meant that across um, the 6th, 5th, and... Okay, keep going. We're good. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> Across the sixth and fifth century BCE, uh, people who spoke a Greek dialect worshipped Greek gods, obeyed Greek uh, traditions, and had vague, generally described as Greek dispositions, came to occupy a wide amount of territory, namely southern Italy, the Greek mainland, up and around the Ionian coast, what we know now as the coast of Turkey, and into the Black Sea, as well as a smattering of islands all throughout. Um, one of the specific Greek traditions we dove into uh, was the idea of the uh, Trojan War, Homer's Iliad, which described the story of uh, Greek polities uniting against a foreign Eastern enemy. Uh, we also discussed Sparta and how, because of a certain demographic issue, namely trying to control the helots, uh, it had haphazardly developed a league structure that would allow it to keep an eye on its slaves while still exerting power on a more international stage. Um, following that, we discuss the rise of Persia and the, subsequ the subsequent uh, Ionian revolt, which forced a situation in which, for survival's sake, Sparta welcomed a variety of new states, namely Athens, into its haphazard league uh, in order to fight the invading Persians. Uh, this one of the things, if, if you'll allow me, one of the things I don't think we really touched on last time is that I don't, th uh, the, the polises, so Athens, Sparta, and all the ones that were involved, didn't really see this as a league just yet. They understood it as a framework for an idea or a system of collaboration, but I think calling it a league is a little bit, it's not a stretch, 
but it's kind of it's 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 uh, uh what's the word not teleological but um, premature thank you yeah it's <laughs> uh, it is very premature it's not wrong but yeah. it, it's it's very um we're, we're, we're looking at the end and saying yeah that's what it is Right. But at the same time, a lot of the fundamental structures of a league, not just a series of Greek cities coming together, but like the actual idea of having neutral locations where they would all meet up, in this case, the Corinthian, the Isthmus of Corinthia, um, to discuss things, a certain amount of unanimity needing to go into discussions and the idea of a hegemon. In this case, it was Sparta. Um, We're all like developed in this time period but yeah it it could be a little premature to call a a formal league um i totally lost what i was talking oh yeah uh this fight also concretized a fundamental greekness uh there had already been a simmering idea of it but with the invasion of the persians uh what we call panhellenism came into being in a way that framed itself as a dipole with imagined and exaggerated aspects of Persia serving as the opposing pole to the fundamental Greekness on the one side. To put it in very uh, simple terms, it became, we are Greek, they are not. It, it, yeah. Macedon notwithstanding, we're not going to get into Macedon just yet, because there's something else. But it was very much um, the idea of the Greek versus the other, versus the barbarian. Yeah, we are Greek because we are not them, and later on, because we are better. Um, however, this uh, Pan-Hellenism, this union, this anti-Persian union, wasn't perfect, and even during the Persian Wars, a number of factions between the various members became apparent. Uh, at one point, there was the Sparta-Athens divide. That isn't so apparent in the Persian Wars. They seem to get along as long as Athens is reserved for its uh, naval naval activities and Sparta is left with its mainland activities, but there are still a few scuffles. There's also the uh, fracture between Syracuse and the rest of the mainland Greek League. We'll get into Uh, that later, though. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I actually find it really interesting how the two books line up. Um, It's weird that Syracuse makes an appearance in Herodotus, but it kind of pays off in Thucydides, almost as though they were planning it the whole time. It's it's, it's Um, Infinity War to Endgame. Right. Yeah, no, it's, uh... um, and then we also have the role of Argos versus the rest of the League, which decides not to join in. Uh, it has a good excuse, namely that Sparta had killed all of its soldiers not too long ago, but uh, it nonetheless created um, divisions within what could have been a Pan-Hellenic League. And then, of course, we get most apparent, apparent the Medais versus non-Medais state. A Medi state being a Greek city state that decided to ally itself with Persia. Um, all of these fractures would come to to come to the fore later in the future and would come to define the geopolitical situation of Greece. Uh, so, kind of concluding that previous episode, uh, the leak system had begun its inception following the model of the mythical Trojan League, and using the scaffolding created by the loose alliance system developed by Barda during the liberation of Ionia and the wars with Persia. It remained to be seen how much this structure would hold up without an immediate existential threat, uh, but we'll be getting that into that today. Um, one final note, 
The connection to a mythical past is certainly stressed in Herodotus, and while both Ryan and I could see why it makes a certain sense and could have um, really resounded with Greek people at the time, it was ultimately a framing device used by Herodotus in the midst of the Peloponnesian Wars. In other words, wars where the Greeks were fighting each other rather than uniting and fighting against someone else. And it's difficult to know for sure if the Greeks of the Persian Wars actually saw themselves in such like an epic light. Well, one of the things um, that you have to remember, too, is that to these ancient Greeks, Achilles was just as real as their as their parents or, or, or yeah. the, the world around them. They had no distinction. Well, not that they had no distinction, but um, like it's it's very difficult to say if someone in the Middle Ages truly believed in 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 what you know. Like I'm talking about Middle Ages in Europe, believed in in their religion, believed in Christianity. We can assume that they did, but we know with the ancient Greeks through writing and um, writing and practices that they they truly believed that the stories about Tro or Troy and the the Trojan Wars, any all the all the all the writings by Homer, they truly believed it and since it was an oral tradition, it made sense for them to believe it. It was, um, those, those Greeks were just as real as the shepherd or just as real as the market. Um, so these gods, they, to them, they did exist. And I think it's really important to understand why they felt it was natural for these leagues to exist. They probably, they heard the stories, you know, to pass down from Homer and they're, yeah, that makes sense for us to work together against this other <laughs> And then, you know, it's very easy for the other to become anything you want it to be. Right. It's actually interesting that you brought up medieval Europe, because um, kind of similar to, um, like, the idea of saints' relics and saints' bones, the Greeks really had this uh, profound interest in the burial of, of heroes. Yeah. So you would want a hero buried near your city, and that would give you kind of, like, supernatural advantages or disadvantages when fighting your enemy to the point where at the end of the Persian Wars, after the Athenian Navy had proved itself like completely ascendant while it was chasing the Persian Navy back to um, the coast of Anatolia, uh, they managed to recover the bones of Theseus and bring them back to Athens for burial. And this became a whole like this combined with rebuilding Athens following the series of raids that had taken place during the Persian Wars really cemented like the rebirth of a new strong Athens. Um, so like not only were these heroes and myths real in the imagination, if you really wanted, you could find the bones uh, to go check them out. It's funny how humans don't change. Yeah, honestly. I mean, uh, but people are buying jars of air that have from the Staples Center, from Kobe's last game in the NBA. So yeah, humans don't change. Right. <laughs> All right, but I mean, that's, a, that's good for our recap, I think. I think we, we, we nailed everything. and uh, yeah. Or I should say you nailed everything. Please do not take that. That's going to get taken out of context. Um, so uh, you wanted to start with the biography of Thucydides, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, uh, rather than putting that 30 minutes into our episode, we're going to do it at the top. Um, so yeah, for this episode, we'll be... <laughs> we're viewer, learning. Viewer retention, what is that? Um, so yeah, for this episode, we'll be using Thucydides as our primary source to investigate the continuation of these themes. Um, as I said, like at the top, it is interesting how many of the things uh, that Herodotus touches on become like concretized in Thucydides' text. So Argos comes back to play a big role um, 
now that it's had a generation or two to give birth to new soldiers. Uh, Syracuse becomes incredibly important. Um, Egypt makes a comeback, and we all remember Herodotus's uh, divergent conversation about hippo uh, hippos in, in Egypt. And just how wrong he is. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it all really, like, it comes back and comes, and you could just be saying that you know, the world was smaller back then. There weren't a lot of places to go, so yeah, they're going to come back. Uh, but it, it, it is, I find, very interesting. But uh, to Thucydides himself, not a lot is really known about Thucydides, except that he was an Athenian of a generation younger than Herodotus. So he's really like the... Herodotus sets the stage, Thucydides follows up. Um, he was likely of Thracian descent, and his family certainly had lands and interests in the gold mines in that area. And during his life, he served as uh, Stratego, Strategos. Strategos. It's... Strategos. Stratego. We got it. Straightgos. Um, <laughs> he served as Straightgos before losing before losing a battle and being exiled. Um, uh, all of this during the Peloponnesian Wars, which he would write a history of. Uh, for a few years following that, and having lived through a number of the of. The, I can't speak today. You're good, you're good. <laughs> Having lived through a number of the events that he described, he filled the gaps of his knowledge by, uh, by, by interviews with both Spartans and Athenians. Though, as always, the uh, Athenian perspective prevailed. Um, we kind of touched on it last time. There's this idea of the Spartan mirage. They didn't write a lot. They were very uh, curt in any discourse they had. So the Athenian flamboyance tends to really shine uh, when opposed to that. Uh, an estimated timeline of Thucydides' life would be from 460 BCE at the uh, earliest to around 404 BCE. Uh, although hard dates are very difficult to find. Yeah, they're not going to uh, get an absolute date on anything that old. Uh, well, not anything, but I mean, for when it comes to people's lives, no, it's not, it's not happening. Yeah, he wrote this big boy. Actually, this is a particular version that's very useful. It's the landmark Thucydides. I uh, strongly recommend it because they put a map every two to three pages, so you can keep up with every tiny village that gets raided. And I have my history bathroom reader, so you can tell the kind of difference between the two of us right here. <laughs> um. Kind of comparing and contrasting Herodotus to Thucydides, one of the, mo the most prominent things you'll hear is that he uh, Thucydides is way more of like a conventional historian. He's very dry. He tries to be very objective. He tries to be very... Uh, he tries to limit his tangents to specifically reinforce his arguments. Um, if you dig a... So like in a lot of ways, very... Uh, familiar to academic historians today. Uh, if you dig a bit more into his style, you'll probably hear a lot about the speeches he makes. He has his characters uh, give these long speeches to highlight certain points. Um, and he himself says that if he can't exactly remember what the person said, or if he finds they didn't say it as effectively as they could, he's going to rephrase everything they said to what they should have said, given what the moment called for. Uh, which is an interesting, like, it's an interesting dramatic flair to put into a historical text. And it, we have it to remember... It makes it more interesting. Yeah. Uh, that he was writing as an aristocrat in Democratic Athens. He was writing a text 
while not necessarily meant to be presented the way Herodotus's was, was still meant to be showcased. And so he wrote, he wrote in an era in which um, sophists were readily prevalent and um, playwrights like Athens was well known for playwrights. So there was a certain sophistication expected of his text. So you can't really take it at face value. Thucydides expects a lot from his readers. And so you as a reader, you know, you couldn't go on Facebook or anything back then. So you really had to dig into what the four books that existed at the time. Um, and so they made sure that the books they were writing were something you could really dig into and revisit and, uh, if Thucydides wants to be subtle, he's going to expect you to be able to to read that subtlety and compare and contrast, say, two well-placed speeches that seem to argue with each other, and then you need to bridge them, essentially. It was much more open-ended than what we would think of today. It, very much, not, not necessarily open up for interpretation, but like as you said, more opportunity for the reader to jump in and maybe draw their own conclusions than, than I mean, it, it, like you said, it's the nature of the writing. He's he's not inventing it, but okay, yeah, he's inventing a little bit of it. But it, it's it's not like today where we have video or even recording of speeches and 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 documents where we can actually okay, what is this person saying? What is, what is this person not saying? And mm -hmm. it's, it's very different. It it, it it's a it's an interesting thing to try and parse together. Yeah. Um, we nowadays try and be very frank, especially with our academic texts and historical texts. We don't want there to be any misunderstandings. No. Thucydides very much wants to be interpreted. He wants his fellow aristocratic friends to go, mm, yes, delightful. Um, what a charm for <laughs> What delicious subtlety, mm, irony, <laughs> and the like. Oh, God. So, yeah, having finished that biography of Thucydides, <laughs> uh, we hope we can understand the true context from, the, from which this text is coming from. All right. Now, I'm sorry, I'm going to be laughing a little here because you got me good. Um so one of the things that uh, that we we also because there's a few other things we need to highlight as as before we really jump in and I realize we're already at 20 minutes and we are still setting the framework and I apologize for this, um, but uh, one of the one of the big things to understand is warfare and especially seasonal warfare and why that's so important is because a lot of the times when we think of wars today we put them in again we put them in the context context of now where you have like years long deployments in some uh in 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 one country and things never change not that things never change but it's like a war of movement or even if you think of world war one it was you know a, a stagnation in the same spot for years and that's not what this was at all it was you you harvest your crops in this in the um in the fall you replant your crops and then you, you, you wait through the winter and then you go, then, then the campaigning season comes along and it's like everyone's favorite sport. You all muster in the, in the market and, uh, the good ones are chosen and you, you, and you get to go off and you get to fight your campaign and how this would work, um, is the battlefronts or battle, uh, battle locations would be pre-chosen 
and I know that might sound weird. It, it is. It, it, it is. It's not something we, we, we see for very long. And one of the things is that these locations were... They, they were the same locations for generations. So, for example, if Corinth and Sparta, not, not to, that went to war uh, often, but let's say they were going to war, they anytime they would, they basically had a selection of three spots to choose from. And it the, the, these, these locations were well-known and understood. So again warfare wasn't it was endemic but it was very different and there was a lot of pomp and circumstance around it like uh, uh the famous uh, the famous spartan saying that a, that a mother would tell their, their son before going off to war when she handed him a shield was with it or on it in other words you come back with your shield or you're gonna die Be either by getting killed or we're going to kill you if you come back without your shield so um right. don't want to get into that whole detail but yeah so there, there's a lot there's a long history of it Oh yeah, <laughs> but there, there, there's a lot of rituals and deeply held beliefs that go go into this. For example, um, there are there are cases where um, one side of a Greek army would absolutely decimate the other side, and then the other side would get the winning side would just get drunk and 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 go back home, and the losing side would be like, well, they left, so guess we won, and they would erect. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of it offhand, and that's not good. I should have written it down. But they would erect a statue that basically says, "Hey, we won here." And that would be... uh, it's it's the ancestor of the word trophy. So yeah. in a lot of English translations, they just say trophy. Okay, so they would they would erect a trophy. Thank you, by the way. They would they would erect mm -hmm. a trophy, and there you go. So it there's a lot of issues that come into when when we're talking about this type of warfare. That it, it it's not you can't think of it like a World War Two battle. It is it is not anything like that. It is very very different. Um, and another thing, like I said, uh, I what I led into this all with was seasonal warfare you generally in, in in a siege you generally did not fight a battle you that is not something they did siege engines they did exist but your siege engine at most was a ladder it wasn't it was a ladder or or an earth and earthwork ramp it was not anything there were battering ramps again they did exist but you wouldn't use them basically what would happen if you were sieging a um uh, a, a, a polis in the summer your job was to absolutely destroy their crops and do enough damage to their walls that they wouldn't have enough time to fix them and replant by the time harvest was ready so that when you came back the next summer they would be weaker that that was the idea so you just because you went off on campaign didn't always mean you were going to be fighting a battle and that's one of the reasons that the spartans declared war on the helots all the time it wasn't just so that they would have an excuse to kill them it's because it would give them legal even though they didn't really need it, it, it would it would give them moral uh, the moral ability to destroy their crops, and that, that's the that's yeah. the main thing here. And the Peloponnesian War was a massive shift away from this. <laughs> like it was it, it it was such a big shift. It was it, it, it's comparable to nineteenth um, uh, century battles into World War One, where you had an idea of like gentlemanly warfare, and then it was just. No, we're we're moving away from this because we like uh, um, we have better techniques, better technology, better equipment. We are going to change this altogether, and that's when, like I said before, you really started to see the introduction of more siege equipment. Again, not that it didn't exist, but it was starting to be used now, uh, scaling ladders and that and the like. And you started to have basically it was it was no longer seasonal. Not that war, wars would become seasonal again after this. But this war was not. It was from beginning to end. It was on, 
And again, yes, armies did retreat in the winter, obviously, but they were still on alert. It, it wasn't right. the same, and especially with the Navy. Right. Actually, kind of going back to what you just said, um, I think it's really worth stressing. Uh, you said like moral Sparta needed the moral high ground. And in terms of having religious sanction to do war, that was a huge thing yeah. about like all of war was very ritualized, as you said. Mm -hmm. um, and one, that didn't mean it wasn't bloody. Like I said, uh, Argos and Sparta had a pre-designated battlefield. They met up with their uh, with uh, their heavy infantry. They lined up. They made sure to sing their songs before fighting. Um, the Spartans made sure to braid their hair before fighting, and then they charged, and the Spartans still didn't hesitate to wipe out the uh, Argonian. Nope, that's a Skyrim. Uh, the Argos army uh, almost to a man, to the point where they were unable to do anything militarily for generation and had to agree to, I think it was a 50-year peace. It was something like that. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Um, so ritualized warfare did not mean not violent warfare. It still got ugly. Um, but And Sparta especially really did everything only with religious sanction. So they had... Um, they would... They, uh, in... Um, Thucydides especially, there are many anecdotes of like them marching out, getting ready to invade Athens, and then an eagle flies the wrong way for them, so they go home. And that's the end of the campaign season for them. Uh, these types of things happen repeatedly because uh, for whatever reason, Sparta was particularly superstitious. Um, and as you said, siege warfare was like incredibly expensive, first of all. Um, and just was not done to the point where Athens built this like unbelievably exaggerated wall that stretched from like it stretched around Athens and then all went all the way down to the coast, went around Piraeus and went all the way back. Like it this was thing extended. It was hugely long. Like no city of that size could maintain a wall. But they didn't have to worry about, you know, trebuchets and things like that. So uh, Thucydides puts it explicitly in the text that they just had old people walking on the wall. If an if uh, someone comes nearby, they let everyone know, kick the first few ladders down, and then they can get the proper army to head off the siege. But you really didn't need much more than that. And with this wall and with the elder population guarding the wall, they were given uh, all the resources they need to have their navy and their various armies going about. Um, so pretty much putting up a wall around your city guaranteed you um, safety until the uh, Peloponnesian War began, at which point it became necessary to develop strategies of getting through walls. Um, now, on the counterpoint of walls, there was, of course, Athens and their navy. They also tended to be rather seasonal with it. For one thing, the storm, uh, storms got pretty bad during, I think it was autumn especially. Uh, yeah, so you, I, didn't I, yeah. Want to, yeah, you didn't want to be out rowing um, during autumn or winter. It was just bad weather. You were going to lose your incredibly expensive fleet. Um, now, what Athens did, uh, it's like great innovation, was that it offered to pay its citizens a single drachma a day in order to serve as rowers. This A, provided tons of money and military experience and jobs 
to the lower class of citizens, but also guaranteed a ready and willing and like dedicated population of rowers. So this kind of wed uh, military ambitions with Athens's democracy. And so with this huge standing rowing uh, force, they could have a huge navy of up to 200 triremes, uh, which is, I believe, the max that it reached during the Peloponnesian War. Yeah, I'm not sure, but that sounds like that's a lot. Yeah. Um, and obviously paying all of these citizens a drachma a day, plus building the ships, could get pretty expensive. And the only way for like this... There weren't banks giving out loans. You couldn't um, you couldn't change the interest rate on your country. You didn't have a mint that was printing out paper money. Everything was backed by hard silver. So while the loot from the Persian Wars gave uh, Athens a bit of a boost to afford these things, while the mines sometimes produced a surplus of silver that Athens could use, really they needed to find uh, money to pay for all of this. And one way was taxing the wealthy, which obviously the wealthy didn't much enjoy and were already not too good, not too uh, big on democracy. So it was best to leave them be lest they lead a coup. Um, the alternative was to get your fellow uh, league members to pay for it. So Athens developed kind of a racket. We'll protect you if you pay us uh, a certain amount of tribute. And so in that way, imperialism and democracy got uh, inextricably linked in the city-state of Athens across uh, the years leading up to the Peloponnesian War and the Peloponnesian War itself, and like was deeply reinforced throughout the Peloponnesian War. I mean, even to this day, the most expensive thing a, go a government can spend their money on is a navy. It right. is insane. And to kind of trace the steps from where we left off, which I probably should have started with following the biography of Thucydides, but... We're still learning here. We'll get there. <laughs> um, Athens had chased the Persians all the way back to the coast of Ionia uh, and won a few more battles. One of them was like the Battle of Erimidon, Emeridon, something to that effect. Uh, I'm not sure. That name doesn't um, matter. Essentially, what happened during naval warfare is you couldn't... Uh, you couldn't keep your ship in the water all the time. Uh, they hadn't waterproofed their boats, so they would get waterlogged and too heavy to continue rowing. So at the end of every day, you would put your boat onto shore. And if you were a sneaky little Athenian, when the Persians had their boats uh, on shore overnight, was probably the best time to attack them, uh, which is what they did during uh, this like final climactic battle, completely destroyed the Persian fleet. Uh, Persia was left defenseless. There were a few more harassing battles. Um, and eventually, what's known as the Peace of Callias. Which may was, or may not uh, have existed. Yeah. The historical consensus was that for... No, sorry. Historical tradition is that in like 469 BC, 459 BC, something like that, uh, the Peace of Callias was signed... And uh, Persia agreed to relinquish control of the Ionian city-states, uh, agreed to not sail any ships in the Black Sea or in the Eastern Mediterranean, um, and paid some kind of tribute to, um, to the Greeks to get them to go away. <laughs> um, but 
in terms of textual evidence, there's not a lot to suggest that 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 there was some kind of formal piece. Um, in fact, Thucydides doesn't mention any formal piece at all. And what this kind of does in terms of talking about the geopolitical situation is it means if there's no peace that the Greeks had were maintaining this kind of informal treaty through force of arms alone. So Athens needed to maintain a heavy naval presence because they needed to make sure that every time the Persians got uppity and put a fleet onto the sea that it was smashed and they would stop trying that. Um, they needed to make sure they were well armed in case Persia made any moves against Ionia again because there was nothing solid keeping Persia out of uh, Greek affairs. Um, what this means is that when we see a series of rebellions take place after the quote-unquote signing of the Peace of Callias, we can see it as Athens um, being aggressively imperialistic and flexing its newfound weight, or we could see it as Athens and the broader Greek League desperately trying to keep everyone in line in case Persia comes back. Um, now, how, as the decades go on, how flimsy this becomes as a pretext for maintaining imperial uh, arms, you know, I'm not going to judge. I wasn't there. Uh, it's not hard to tell which side you're on, though. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so the ambiguities of the Peace of Callias kind of make Athenian imperialism, if not justified, at least more understandable, because I don't even think the Athenians really believed they were justified. They just realized how far they'd gone and that they couldn't go back, because if they'd stopped the empire, they would have so many enemies on their back. Well, that's, um, like I was saying before, it's... Um... We, we know that they believed in their ancient traditions as fact, but it's really hard to tell what they believed they were doing was either just or if they if exactly like you said, they just gone so far. How, how can we go back now? We don't know that. I mean, I, I truly believe that there are some people in the Athenian because remember, it was a democracy of sorts that truly believed. Yes, we're doing this for truly uh, um, they wouldn't have just under they wouldn't have had this concept at the time, but utilitarian reasons we're doing the we're, we're doing the right thing. But I, yeah, I mean, there must have been a healthy split of people that would be like, we're this far in the soup, <laughs> like, right? We can't go back. And so, and so following the the fifty year uh, following the peace of Callias, there was a fifty year period in which the Athenian Empire as it came to be known, really kind of concretized itself. It started with the splitting away from Sparta. So Sparta was in charge of the Peloponnesian League. And at that time, this was known as more like a general Hellenistic League. Everyone was involved. Uh, but uh, Sparta being more conservative, being less aggressive in pushing out the Persians, was happy having pushed them away to go home. Athens wanted to pursue something more aggressive. A lot of the island states and Ionian states kind of agreed, which makes sense. They were way closer to Persia. They wanted to make sure this thing was set in stone. Um, so uh, a league of, the League eventually split into the Peloponnesian League, and uh, led by the Spartans, and the Delian League, led by the Athenians. Uh, the reason it was called the Delian League was because the treasury was put on the island of Delos. The, yeah, Delos. Um, Greek names so, yeah. are weird. They, uh, they, I guess they invented the letters so they get to decide, but uh, 
Yeah. Well, Not a big fan a, of the pronunciation. They get a pass. <laughs> um, and yeah, over the next 50 years, Athens cemented its control over the Delian League, becoming more uh, unanimous in its decrees. Uh, at the onset, you had the choice as a Delian member to either provide your own ships or to provide tribute. But as years would go on, Athens would... Um, more and more demand that its members not provide troops and instead just give them silver and let them do all the work. Um, this had the twofold benefit of paying their uh, their rowers, their citizen rowers, and also making sure that the various members of their new empire were defenseless in the face of them. Uh, but um, I mean, um, uh, uh, switching gears a little bit, um, it wasn't all negative being in these polices, though. I know we're going to get into this a little later, but also one of the things I want I want to point out is that Athens also, like you said, became very aggressive. Yeah, originally the the original treasury that was supposed to be shared between all the members of the polis was on the island of Delos, and then one little revolt happened, which was n nothing out of the ordinary. It was totally normal. And then Athens was like, nope, 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 can't have, can't have the treasury on the island of the... Nope, it can't be there anymore. It can't be with... It, it, it's not safe there. We need to put it in Athens in the... Uh, um, crap, what's the name of the hill? Um, the, the, the Parthenon. We're going to put it in the Parthenon. It's, that's where it's going to be. No one is allowed to get near it. The only people allowed in there are Athenian state actors, no one else. And, and even people that were like high-ranking officials in the Delian League could no longer have access to the treasury. So, yeah, so Athens was getting pretty aggressive. But, there was always a but here. For the smaller members of the League, they did still have the option to leave. Uh, the bigger ones didn't. They, 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 would have, they would have been pushed back in. But um, you have to remember, it was, it was a certain amount of give and take. For them, they looked at the benefits that the Leagues also had. And uh, I think we're going to... Do you want to get into that later or you want to get into it now? Uh, I was just going to round out the 50-year the period, and then we can jump into the various benefits of being part of Athens. That, that I know you, cool. as a Athenian apologist, want to get into it. Um, <laughs> nah, man. Fuck Athens. <laughs> uh, but kind of to what you were saying, uh, especially with the, the moving the treasury from Delos, um, Athens got it in its head that it could that A, it could continue to take on Persia purely as a naval power, and B, that this taking on of Persia included taking over all of Egypt, which is just Asinine. an incredible bid for power, which is something that Athens, it will not learn from this. It will continue to be like, yeah, I can do whatever I want, and I will succeed, and just lose so hard just risk it all on the dumbest thing just just to put this in perspective for people that might not know egypt was so rich even under the mismanagement of the ptolemies that it bankrolled the roman empire think about that which kind of kind of makes it a tempting target um, oh yeah 100 percent but the persians were not just gonna let this thing yeah <laughs> no they lost, like, the look how hard they fought for the pennies they were making off of the coast of Ionia. They were not going to lose the Nile River. Um, but more than gold, silver, and mineral resources, 
uh, Egypt was important because it provided a ton of grain. And that seems to be the through line of these weird Athenian ambitions. When they try and take over all of Sparta, uh, when they try and take over all of Sicily, after like barely winning the first half of the Peloponnesian War, um, it'll it's most likely because of the grain deposits that they had there. Uh, Sicily, if you look at all the granaries of the Roman Empire, to go back to your illusion, um, to go back to your example, rather. Illusion. <laughs> yeah. The three places that Rome like went for for grain, um, Egypt, Sicily, the Black Sea, are all places that Athens had ambitions for. And the only place that uh, Athens succeeded in actually getting a pretty good hold on was around the Black Sea. The issue with the Black Sea is that it has a very narrow strait um, where the future city of Constantinople would be lo strategically located um, that was a little too close to Persia. If Persia wanted, they could very easily close the Dardanelles and Athens' grain supply would be locked up. So it seems as though they were looking for alternatives uh, and they decided during this time period that the alternative they had the biggest chance of getting was freaking Egypt. Um, so they made a go of it. They sent like their best and brightest 100 triremes and lost it all. Um, they lost a, a naval battle because they I think they got, they sailed up the Nile itself and without a whole lot of maneuverability um, were promptly trounced. Uh, unfortunately, they sent reinforcements before hearing that their entire navy had been sunk. So they lost those as well and found themselves incredibly vulnerable. Uh, and decided that keeping their treasury on an undefended island in the middle of the Aegean was probably not the best thing to do. I can't say I disagree with them, but also I don't think I would have agreed to sail on all of Egypt. Um, so again, I wasn't there. I don't know. Um, so they moved their treasury, and with the treasury located in the Acropolis, in the Parthenon, um, they could... They had direct access to all their tribute and were less than honest with their access to it. Officially, it was supposed to be for arming and defending the Delian League, but I mean, Athens wanted a few new statues here and there. Their temples were looking a little shoddy, uh, and it provided good, strong jobs. So uh, the gold started getting spent more widely around for general Athenian improvement. Uh, and at this point, with its long walls defending it, with, um, it, yeah, it began to think that it could take on the world and began to act like it too. And it became readily apparent after the loss of the fleets in Egypt and then a few raids by Sparta that this was not going to work out. Some historians describe this general kerfuffle as the first Peloponnesian War. I wouldn't say I agree with that. I mean, Thucydides didn't describe it that way. He gave it its own nomenclature. Um, and I'm going to side with him. He was there. Um, but yeah, a 30 years peace then does get signed with Spartan, Sparta and the Peloponnesian Leagues. And everyone just kind of decides to calm down for a little bit. Sparta, uh, Athens rebuilds its fleet. 
um, and really takes the time to aggrandize its power. Um, it should be noted that while it's difficult to know what the populations of Athens was in this time period, it's fairly obvious that it was a magnitude larger than any other single Greek city-state. Um, we're dealing with cities in the tens of thousands. Some people say that the entirety of Attica, which is the spit of land where Athens is located, um, could have had upwards to 300 or 450,000 people. Um, and a lot of these people were urbanized. Uh, with grain coming in from the Black Sea, they had really... Um, they found the special sauce that made it work. Yeah, they had a lot of food so they could feed a huge population, kind of similar to what Rome did. Um, and they could specialize their economy. Their local farmers did not need to grow bread, barley, the basics. They could now do cash crops. They could do olive oil, wine, these sorts of things, which allowed uh, Athenian commerce to flourish, which I think leads into your point about the benefits of being in the empire benefits yeah, big big air quotes on that one <laughs> well one of the things that's important to understand about these leagues um is that they were actually really natural as we can see it was uh, well it was common defense they didn't start that way we're not going to get into that but they, they they more or less started as religious and then they then they evolved into military and then they evolved even further after that and the further the, the further expanse was that they shared they shared a common they shared a common uh, uh, market because they shared a common military. So what that means is that if you were a small little city state, that because and and a lot of these city states were very very protective of their markets. Understandably so, they didn't really have an idea of global economics how that could be beneficial. Well, now this small little city state that might have been struggling to get by has access to that ex that cash crop market of Athens and now they can get in on that trade so yeah you were being muscled but there were benefits here and I'm not an Athenian I'm not an Athenian apologist thank you very much I don't think it's a good thing but there were benefits to the smaller to the smaller cities they, they not only did they not have to worry about defending themselves although not that if, if you were part of the if you were part of the Spartan the Spartans League they were not going to help if you were attacked. The only way they were helping you yeah. is if you were right on their border and you said, look, if you don't help us, we're marching on you. Then they might be inclined to say, fine, we'll give you a hand. But other than that... And only if and only if the eagle was flying in the right direction and it was like the third Tuesday of the second month and both Delphi and that other weird oracle they had both said it was okay and it wasn't raining... Maybe then. <laughs> no, no thunder. Um, but uh, I, I know we've been jumping around a lot. But uh, for the sake of understanding, um, uh, the establishment of different leagues varied greatly between different regions. Um, some were set up very early, like the like the Thessalian League and the and the Phoenician League. Uh, they were established in the fifth century BC. That's before the the, the like the uh, I believe yeah it is before the Peloponnesian War. So yeah, things like mm -hmm. th they were natural. Um, where some were created by the vacuum, uh, some were created in the vacuum after the decline of Athens, a Athens and Sparta, I should say, um, after the Peloponnesian War. Um, so it's it's very much um, when when we talk about the um, 
the the Delian League and um, the Peloponnesian League, that being Athens and Sparta, they weren't everlasting. In fact, I think their heyday was maybe 150 years, and that's stretching it. Like I, I, I'm talking the end of the per, end of the Persian to the end of the Peloponnesian War, because after the Peloponnesian War, Athens and Sparta just they, they nosedived without each other, without them posturing against each other. They really didn't have. There was nothing keeping them relevant anymore. And Sparta, as you were explaining before, had no fucking interest in anything else. They were very, very, um, uh, what's the word? Um, I want to say secular, but it's not the right word. Um, they were uh, isolationist. Uh. They were very isolationist. So um, that that's one of the things that's really important to understand is that these leagues, everyone understood them. And it's thought that up to 50% of Polis's joined uh, a league but they were also um how the, how the greeks would have called them was a coin on and that's how we think they're pronounced we're not sure but we'll go with coin on and so um yeah it was estimated that over 50 uh, 50 percent of polises were members of coin at one point or another but not every polis joined their local coin on not every neighbor of sparta joined the peloponnesian league and the the Personally, I find this really interesting, King. I'm sorry if you don't, but I think it's really cool. Um, you, you can look at it this way. Um, they may not, for example, let's say the Sparta's neighbor doesn't want to join their league because they look at it like, well, if I join with Sparta, then I can never go to war with them. I'm under their thumb. I don't want that. But if I join the Delian League, yeah, I'm paying paying protection to Athens, but they'll at least do something if if I get into trouble. I also have access to their market. So just because you you weren't you were close to someone doesn't mean that you were going to be necessarily allied to them. Yeah, there was a higher chance, but it's not necessary. Another reason was it was a you, you could lose your resources. You could lose your resources. Um, let's say that you might be friend you might be good friends with the person that's in charge of the league, but you're not good friends with someone who's in that league, and you do not want to work with them. And that was also another possibility. Now that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to go to war with them. Be, again, if they're if they're protected by Athens, you don't want to go to war with them at all. But you now you're going to be competing with them in an open market, and you don't necessarily want that. So, um, most of these leagues also had what's called a federal ecclesia or an assembly that was controlled by the reg. It controlled the regular goings on going goings on of the league, and that's real. That's also really important to understand. Um, so usually this assembly was held in one city, uh, usually getting the title of capital of the league. Although sometimes they rotated, because uh, again you wouldn't want um, Athens. Although Athens did, I'm just using them as the a broad <laughs> example. But yes, Athens was the capital of the league. There, even even when, even when the treasure was on the island of Delos, Athens was the focal point, which is understandable. But why that's important to understand is that. It wasn't, even though Athens was Athens and Sparta were the main hegemons of their respective leagues, they didn't have all the say. They 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 did have to answer to a larger group, and if that larger group was united against them, Athens and Sparta could absolutely say, "Well, fuck you anyway. We're going through with what we want," and Sparta generally did. But they would get some very very bad feedback, and that could hurt them in the long run, and it it ended up hurting them. Um, voting for the Ecclesia was usually direct, meaning that the city where the assembly was held 
generally had the majority, which makes sense as to why Athens was like, nah, it's it's it. We're we're meeting here today, boys. Yeah. No 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 debate. And that makes sense. That makes total sense. Yeah, uh, kind of going off of what you were talking about, especially with regards uh, to Sparta and Athens and like the different degrees of um, say of different members. Um, I think like the. So we started our narrative with the big league, the Hellenistic League, and then it splits into two. And I think the interest of really focusing on the Peloponnesian War period uh, at, within like the broader discussion of leagues is because here, before the complete splintering into many leagues, we see a presentation of two paths that the league system could take. In the way of the Peloponnesian League, we have a slightly more decentralized... Uh, wow. Wow. <laughs> decentralized league system. Uh, Sparta is unambiguously the hegemon of it. Um, they won't take no two butts about it. But at least in as presented by Thucydides, Corinth is always putting in its two cents. Um, and there are places like Megara, which can decide some days it wants to be part of the league, some days it's going to flirt with Athens, some days it's going to do its own thing. And there are also just allies of Sparta who are not in the league, but fight with the league. It's all very... Um, it's loose. On, that, I think that's the Yeah, it's very loose. Um, and this kind of... Sorry. I, I, sorry. Uh, sorry, sorry, yeah, this kind of plays to Sparta's insularness. Uh, they don't really want to go out all that much, so they're just like, yeah, do your own things. As long as you agree that any of my enemies are your enemies, we'll be fine, and that can be the basis of the league. I don't need you to pay me tribute as long as you provide your hoplites because those are cheaper and easier to train uh, as opposed to uh, a navy, which is the counterpoint, the other version of the league that exists. Uh, because it's funded by the navy, because you really want the best ships and the best rowers, otherwise it just, like, the specialization is key to running a successful fleet, especially in this time period. Um you really want a centralized league, something that borders more and more on an empire, which is what it ends up becoming. And so we have this presentation of two types of league, one very centralized, one very mercantile, one very um, aggressive and I mean, hell, adventurous. They, yeah, the, uh, on that, the, um, the dealing league was so centralized, they had their own coinage. Yeah, they had their own coinage, all... Any, any feuds you had had to be dealt with in the Athenian court, which kind of leading to the marriage of democracy and imperialism. The Athenian court meant an Athenian jury. Athenian jurists were paid, and there were literally tens of thousands of them. Um, so it was a good day for democracy when anyone in the Delian League had a, had a, had a scuffle. They, they were bankrolling that shit. Um. And so, yeah, we have our two visions and they come into conflict and one ultimately triumphs, not necessarily because it was better, because, what, if I'm going to be honest, mostly because Athens was dumber. Um, there's so much going for Athens in this and I mean, they just, <laughs> like, there's so much going, but there's not enough going for them to take Egypt and there's not enough going for them after having survived a plague and a 10-year war with Sparta to take Sicily. It's like, 
if they would just calm down a little bit. They had this, but I, I mean, digress. Uh, no, no, it's fine. But one of the things that uh, um, you, 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 you really got into it there, that, that's really important, is how these leagues were structured. And even though they were very different, they all had at least a similar makeup. And that goes back to what I was saying about them being kind of a natural progression. Like we know the Ecclesia, like I said before, it was the, it was the assembly. They also had a, a, a bull, uh, it's, it's spelled bull, but it's like bully. Um, it was responsible for the daily affairs. It was made up of archons and strategoi, like you were saying before. Um, the mm -hmm. leagues, as, as you mentioned, they had their own federal court systems. Again, not all of them. This is, this is more of a broad strokes type of thing, but it was to further help d the division with the division and management of the coin on, um, the coin on politics. Um, they could even be divided further into a Meros and a Telos. A Meros being um, division and a Telos being a district. Now, you, you, you could get that deep down in the leagues themselves, which to me is nuts because you really wouldn't see anything, anything that complicated again until I would say the 19th century. I, I'd like, I would, that, that, okay. that, I would, the Roman systems didn't even get this complicated. I'm talking right. about their alliance systems at least. Like, you didn't have anything where a smaller uh, a smaller uh, alliance member could actually take a complaint about a bigger one and actually have it be heard out not necessarily that they would win but it, it just wouldn't happen and and even then right. I'm stretching by saying the 19th century yeah and it kind of speaks to the mindset of the greeks of that very uh like synoikism fed centralized thing where uh, everyone thinks their polis is the center of the universe and so if you're going to have any kind of foreign affairs with that type of mindset going into it, you really do need to have a degree of appreciation for even the tiniest of polis. Exactly. And uh, uh, that also goes back to what we like. We're, 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 we're getting the, the links good in this one. Like we were saying before, they believed that their religious stories weren't just stories. They were fact. And a lot of these cities shared the same founding myth. So that meant that if you turned your back on your, your small neighbor pole as well, then you were turning your back on your ancestors. And that was not acceptable. And like going back to the Maros and the Telos, the Maros was responsible for uh, taxation, the shared economy and recruitment for the federal army. That's something we really haven't touched on yet. I, I, it's not super important, but they, they, they did have at least, um, at least the Athenians did. They did have a federal army, but you're right. It took a complete backseat to the um to the navy it was not but that's the reason they had a quote federal a, a, a centralized military because they could do it uh and <laughs> the um the talos was responsible for the uh, the boule and the ecclesia in other words you had uh, that's how that distinction worked um all this meant that the polis were starting to loosen laws uh forbidding foreigners from owning land and participating heavily in local economies so, like I said before, you can have a merchant from another from Corinth in Athens trading. Uh, again, not that Corinth was ever part of the Delian League, but you, you, you can have that. And now you can have a rich landowner from Olympia buying land in Athens and participating in the politics in Athens, which never would have happened before. That was completely foreign up to that point. So it's a really interesting crossroads where yeah we, where uh we've been we've been describing where the greeks as the greeks and then everything else is the other but the greeks themselves saw each other as the other to a certain extent and right that's really to me at least that's really interesting how you can warp this idea of what the other is to just whatever fits your needs of the day yeah and like 
uh, as we go into the Peloponnesian War, it seems to be that the the Persia Greek dipole we started with then becomes the Sparta Athens dipole. And all these traits we talk about, uh, the lethargic Greeks, the martial Greeks, the the insular Greeks, the religious Greeks, become counter, uh, replace every time I said Greek with Sparta in that, uh, becomes counterposed with the energetic Athenians, the cosmopolitan um, uh, mercantile Athenians, the artistic and, and vibrant Athenians, um, the go-getter Athenians. Clearly, you can tell who wrote all the sources because of how well Athens comes out of all this. Um, <laughs> Even though they're the winners. Um, yeah, <laughs> Sparta wins, but we still all love Athens. Um, but yeah, so uh, at the Peloponnesian Wars really see a, a new dipole being cast to the fact to the point where both sides have no problem going to Persia for help. Uh, you know, the enemy, or at least the previous mentioned enemy. Um, and yeah, we see this like incredibly complex system of alliances getting developed. Uh, this is really um, the Greek city-state system. Once Greece realizes its potential as uh, having a global presence, for lack of a better word, a Mediterranean presence, uh, trying to find a way to exercise its power on that stage, uh, which can't really be done with a city-state system. You need to either, you need to develop a league of some sort in order to have the, the power to project, essentially. There needs, to, there, uh, there needs to be some semblance of centralization, otherwise it won't work at all. Because you, you, mm -hmm. you'll be talking and no one will no one will be forced to listen to you. And I think we like we we've really covered the dealing league really well, but I think it's also good to, that we um, to finish up with the uh, with the Peloponnesian League. Just just going over a few a few bits because like like you were just saying, all the sources are written by Athenians, so God fucking right. forbid we figure out anything about the the Spartans, and that make, uh, that makes it kind of difficult because we have to piecemeal out what the Spartans were in this context. But we think we did a pretty good job. So um. Uh, Sparta initially just just conquered everything, and 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 this is not again conquering in the modern sense. They would walk in, wipe out a city, and go home. Not a good system. How'd you do? <laughs> Hi, how you doing? So, um, but when they defeated Corinth and Tegea, Sparta switched from conquest to alliances because they realized that buffer states were a hell of a lot more useful than just creating enemies everywhere you went. So, um, these alliances were these alliances were considered perpetual. And they didn't actually have to help each other. It was basically, as you said before, oh, my enemies are your enemies, go do whatever the hell you want. In other words, when, when I go to war, you go to war, but if you go to war, I don't fucking care. As long as you're not going to <laughs> war against me. So, um, and, and, and this was very different, like you said, from the Athenian one, where it was very decentralized except for one thing, and that was its military side. The military side was very centralized to the point where they actually had a command structure. And obviously Sparta was at the top. And then, uh, so Sparta was at the top of the council around them formed by their allies. They, they could pass resolutions, but, and they were voted on by the members, 
but the decisions were for, forwarded to the polices for the, the polices to either vote or vote on or just agree to depending on what their if they had a democracy or if they had um or if they had spartan appointed kings which did more often than not so to vote on them um but when it came to military affairs uh, the other polices were given a place to speak up through Sparta, that like speak up in to Sparta. But again, Sparta pretty much had the final say. Their word was law. If they disagreed with you or they thought you were talking out of turn or whatever, they would give you the smackdown. It right. didn't matter. I mean, and I, I believe you had one fantastic anecdote about one city that stood up against them and then instantly regretted it. Um, actually, kind of going back to siege warfare thing. Uh, are you talking about Plataea? Was yes. that what? Yes, yes, I am. Okay, I think it's yeah. A good so way to Plataea end. is where Plataea is where the Peloponnesian War really starts. Um, that's their, that's where uh, the Thebans invade and eventually everything goes crazy. Um, and so the Spartans start a multi-year-long siege of the town of Plataea. Uh, Plataea has been a staunch Athenian ally from the beginning. They stood with Athens at um, the Battle of Marathon, for context. Athens conveniently forgets this every time they talk about it. They talk about how they single-handedly fought off the Persians, but that's a different story for a different time. Uh, technically, Plataea was in Boeotia, so it should have been with the Thebans, um, but they liked Athens more. They didn't get involved. So there, it was it was in a very finicky area. So Sparta shows up to take it, and a Looney Tune series of adventures take place during the siege of Plataea. Um, Sparta tries to build ramparts uh, up onto the uh, Plataean walls to, you know, essentially walk over and invade the city. So Plataea begins building its walls up higher and higher, so that the Spartans have to keep building up to get to the top. Eventually, Plataea realizes it's going to run out of materials to do this, so they come up with a better idea. They dig under their wall to the rampart that's being built with Sparta, and as Sparta adds soil onto the top, the Plataeans take it out from underneath. Um, these types of shenanigans continue just continuously until eventually Sparta exhausts them and takes over the city, at which point um, the entire city is asked a question uh, like uh, what did they do for Sparta and it turns out that uh, Plataea didn't do anything they may have stood us against the Persians at um, Marathon while the Thebans didn't but in terms of what did you do for Sparta it was nothing so the entire population was put to the sword uh, which is not quite the Looney Tunes ending you'd hope for usually Bugs Bunny gets away but uh or makes a fool of Yosemite Sam. Yeah, just so it goes. This time, Yosemite Sam, uh, well, he, he got killed Bugs rabbit. Bunny and put his wife to slavery. <laughs> perfect way. Perfect end to a perfect night. Um, so we, while we did kind of flirt around the Peloponnesian War, we didn't really go into it. Uh, essentially, it was a devastating war. Lots of blood, uh, treasure, tears was spilt in it. Um, it kind of, it took, what, 30 years? 27 years? Yeah. 
Uh, it went from 431 to 404 BCE. Um, and really the reason it took so long was because Athens dominated at sea while Sparta dominated on land. But Spartan domination doesn't really matter when you're hiding behind walls and we still haven't quite figured out siege warfare. So it would just be tit for tat battles. Um, there was a break halfway through uh, because Athens had figured out the game-winning strategy of arming Spartan helots, which was really freaking them out. And then it captured an entire army of Spartans and held them prisoner until Sparta cried uncle. Sparta promptly cried uncle. Uh, they got their prisoners back. Uh, there was a temporary peace. Athens got it in its head that it could take on Sicily. Um, spoiler alert, it could not. It lost most of a fleet and an entire army. Syracuse is friggin' dangerous, man. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, to bring up the, the game-winning innovation that Syracuse came up with in order to defeat the invincible Athenian fleet, uh, they just made thicker oars. <laughs> uh, that way, when Athenian ships came alongside the Syracusan triremes, um, the Syracusans could just wipe out all of their oars, and then the ships would be sitting ducks to be promptly boarded by marines and sunk. Um, so that's all it took. Uh, eventually, Spart uh, the war continues for, I think, like a decade more following that. It really wasn't um, much fighting after that, though. The, 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 yeah. the climax had been had. Um, it's still... Sparta can't quite get a stranglehold on Athens until it builds its own fleet with funding from Persia um, and starves the city out. Essentially, that's what it takes to defeat Athens. Um, yeah, it is no, worth noting. Well, I was yeah. just going to say, there's no big ending, there's no big explosion, no climactic battle, that's what I mean. The big moment had happened, It was now it was just wait. Mm -hmm. And it's an exhausting drag-out fight um, all through it. Uh, you know, Sparta gets one army taken and surrenders, uh, at least temporarily. Whereas on the Athenian side, in like the first two years of the Peloponnesian War, they get it into their head that we're going to take all Athenians and hide them in the city walls. Uh, they do that. So this means that somewhere to the degree of 350,000 people are in the Athenian long walls. And obviously this incredibly crowded environment leads to the spread of disease. A horrific disease breaks out. Now, this is a 27-year-long war, and this disease breaks out in, like, the third year of the war. One-third of the Athenian population dies in this epidemic. And Sparta keeps kicking for another 20 years. Goes on to lose another army and, like, three more fleets across this battle. Say what you will, Athens knows how to take a hit. Like... I mean, it's not it's not quite on the scale of Rome, but you know, some some of the soldiers that were fighting at the end of that war weren't even born when it started. Yeah. Um. So we get to the end of the war. It's decided that a centralized Greek system isn't going to work. Um. Ultimately, looking into it, who benefited from this war? Uh it was Persia. Persia is the secret winner of today's episode. Um, they get all of the Ionian city-states back for helping to fund 
uh, the, the Spartans. Uh, they get rid of the incredibly annoying Athenians who have too much ambition for their own good. And they get as like the primary hegemon of the Greeks, uh, the most lethargic and uninspired of the armies, the one who just wants to keep an eye on its helots. Um, so ultimately, they come out looking pretty good. But the fall of the Peloponnesian and the, well, the fall of the Delian League uh, to the point Athens' empire is completely dismantled. Corinth is egging Sparta on to like tear down their walls and destroy the city completely, like wipe it out from existence. Sparta, for some reason, relents and well, doesn't do that. We we know the reason. It's because well, I mean, the Athenian sources say, but you know, is it really it? Um, Sparta claimed that they had Athens had done great things for for Greek society and the world as a whole as they understood it, and they could not justify raising the city just because they lost a war. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems. Not... It didn't work for Plataea, no, but uh, sure. No, it doesn't sound like it comes out of the mouth of a Spartan. But you know what? I'm willing to take it at face value. They probably saw more value in installing puppet kings, the Thirty mm -hmm. Tyrants, I believe it was. Um, they, they, yes. they, they saw more value in, in installing tyrants that were loyal to Sparta than they did in just destroying it. And that makes total sense. In, in the grand scheme of things, um, it does make sense. I suppose. But um, essentially, uh, at this point, Greece had so exhausted itself that even the Pel even the ascendant Peloponnesian League uh, was like a shadow of its former self. And this vacuum, the absence of the Delians and the reduction of the Peloponnesians, led to, like, I don't know, the golden autumn of the League system, which we'll be touching on in our next episode, in which not one, not two, but many Leagues come to the fore and alternate with each other in rapid succession for hegemonic control of the Greek world. And, and, um, and we'll answer the question, is it Corinth's time to shine? Yeah, can Corinth stop being the annoying lackey of Sparta and actually uh, take over for once? But until then, where can the lovely people find us, Ryan? All right, so um, we can be reached at, uh, well, we can be reached on Twitter at Enriching Your Enriching B, perfect name. And you can follow us on our extremely active, like the most active uh, Instagram you will ever see at Enriching Your Brain. And if you think we're really cute, you can send us an email at enrichingyourbrain at gmail.com. In, uh, in fact, if you act fast enough, you'll be the first ever listener to send us an email. We'll more than likely answer. Well, this has been the Untitled History Podcast. No promise. <laughs> so, yeah, this has been the Untitled History Podcast. I'm Ryan. He's Kane. Until next time.